Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Christmas is coming up, of course, and um, there's been a lot of talk of, of um, not, you know, making sure that it's all inclusive and not offending anyone, as if, God forbid, anyone should be offended by anything ever. And so people are very sensitive about the Christian nature of Christmas and uh, not wanting to upset Muslims and Jews and Sikhs and anyone else. But so, so being um, thoroughly woolly, liberal, guilt-ridden people here at Hooting Yard, um, I thought I'd celebrate Christmas with um, a song, a sacred song from yet another religious tradition. This is taken from the Rig Veda Americanus, Sacred Songs of the Ancient Mexicans, for all those Aztec fundamentalists out there. Um, and that it's from a volume in Brinton's Library of Aboriginal American Literature, edited by D.G. Brinton, uh, published in 1890. And very good it is too. I don't know the title of this um, piece. It's a war song, which is possibly not appropriate for Christmas, but never mind, we're inclusive here. The war song of the Huitznahuac. And it goes like this. What ho! My work is in the Hall of Arms. I listen to no mortal, nor can any put me to shame. I know none such. I am the terror. I know none other. I am where war is. My work is said to be in the Hall of Arms. Let no one curse my children. Our adornment comes from the south. It is varied in colour as the clothing of the eagle. Ho, ho, abundance of youths doubly clothed, arrayed in feathers, are my captives. I deliver them up, I deliver them up, my captives arrayed in feathers. Ho, youths for the Huitznahuac, arrayed in feathers, these are my captives. I deliver them up, I deliver them up, arrayed in feathers, my captives. Youths from the south, arrayed in feathers, my captives. I deliver them up, I deliver them up, arrayed in feathers, my captives. The god enters, the Huitznahuac. He descends as an example, he shines forth, he shines forth, descending as an example. Adorned like us, he enters as a god. He descends as an example. He shines forth. He shines forth, descending as an example. And um, an adaptation of that song, with slightly amended words, is wassailed to the tune of Carry On Wayward Son by Stadium Rockers Kansas. And it's been heard around Hooting Yard every day for the past couple of months, ever since Pansy Cradlejew became an adept of goon fang. Often confused with the traditional martial arts of the East, goon fang is, as David Bowie once said so regrettably, a completely different kettle of poisson. I asked Pansy to explain for readers what it means to be an adept of this ancient mystic art, and uh, she scribbled a few words on the discarded wrapper of a toffee apple, which I'll read out now. 
It is not without reason that Goon Fang is shrouded in mystery, for when the powers of both Goon and Fang are combined, the adept enters the plane of Ver-Eek, a state of being both terrifying and a bit frightening. If I tell you anything more, my Goon energy will be dissipated, and my Fang plasma will curdle. The plasma is, of course, invisible and mighty, but should it curdle, the very stars in their heavens will explode. So I'm keeping mum for the time being. A seasonal story now. This is called In the Bleak Midwinter. I know it's not midwinter, but it's pretty bleak. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. But that was outside, in the vast, harrowing wilderness of wind and ice and storm and horror. Whereas we were snug inside in the lecture tent, cupping in our hands piping hot mugs of a strange Norwegian soup, peering through the steam towards the platform upon which stood a lectern awaiting a lecturer. There was, as you can imagine, typical lecture tent hubbub. But then, suddenly, he was there at the lectern, smashing his fist on it, startling us all, so the hubbub was hushed in an instant, and he began to speak. Valves! Flaps! Funnels! Ducts! Dials! Plungers! And hundreds upon hundreds of nozzles! My name is Serge. He then gathered up a sheaf of papers from the lectern and left the platform, disappearing behind a curtain of mauve and cerise brocade, and we were forced to conclude that the evening's lecture was at an end. Now, this was something of a quandary. It was early evening out in the trackless icy wastes, and we were at a loose end. It may have been worth pursuing Serge, of course, if only to pump him for the precise meaning of what had seemed to be very well-chosen words. Which valves did he mean? What flaps? And so on and so forth. Al Hugervamp, my companion, was pessimistic, however. She said she knew his type and he would be forever unforthcoming. I pondered what type Serge was, and how El Hugervamp knew enough of them to make so sweeping a judgment. Before I could quiz her to this effect, there was an unutterably hideous, inhuman, eerie, blood-curdling, eldritch, awful howling from outside. El Hugervamp stopped up her ears with cotton wool and continued to smoke her acrid Serbian cigarillo, looking quite plussed and nonchalant, Unlike me, for I was nonplussed and chalant and innocent of cotton wool ear stoppers. A waiting page person stepped to my side to take my drained soup mug, and I asked him what was the cause of the howling. He said nothing in reply, merely exchanging sidelong glances with El Hugervamp, who I am sure nodded in response to his imperceptibly raised eyebrow. The next thing I knew, he had taken me forcibly by the arm, steered me out of the tent, plopped me none too gently onto a sledge, boarded it himself, and mushed a team of huskies who sped us across the ice at bewildering speed. 
the howling had not been husky howling, of that I was convinced, for I have made a thorough study of the howlings of all known hounds, and of certain other howling creatures which are not hounds, such as monkeys. But the fact that my question remained unanswered was of little concern to me now, as I hung on to the wooden safety rails of the sledge, fearful that if I lost my grip I would topple off onto the ice or snow or whatever impossibly white stuff it was we were streaking across, glistening under the moonlight. David Bowie would once have dubbed it serious moonlight, and not without reason. I do not think I've ever been in a more serious frame of mind than I was then. A thousand questions jumbled in my brain. The only one I can recall all these years later was, did they put something in the soup? It was a good question, actually. Later, when I was sitting opposite Serge in a sort of giant bamboo and straw pod that might have been constructed from half a dozen balloon baskets... I asked him about the soup. His reply was fascinating. Lengthy, but absolutely fascinating. Among the points I managed to jot down with my jotting stub in my jotter were the following. 1. As I had surmised, the soup was strange and Norwegian. 2. The recipe had been discovered in a manuscript entitled Some Strange Norwegian Soup Recipes Copied by Hand from Ancient Incunabula. 3. El Hugervamp had sprinkled something into the soup as it simmered on the stoves at the back of the tent. 4. He, Serge, was but a spectral being who had been sent to impart an important message to the world and I was to be the recipient of that message. Five, well, having said that, either me or somebody else whose identity he could not divulge. Once he had ceased his babbling, I shifted uneasily on my chaise longue and fixed him with what I hoped was a steely glare. This was completely wasted, for I later learned that Serge was as blind as a blanket. He eschewed the use of a guide dog because, being spectral, he had no need for earthbound assistance. Having not knowingly met an ethereal being before, I felt rather shy and flapped my hands around awkwardly. One of my shoelaces had come undone on the high-speed skim across the wasteland to Serge's pod. I became conscious that there were bits of steamed greens from the soup in my beard. Serge was saying nothing more for the time being. We sat in silence for some time. I could not help pondering on El Hugervamp's perfidy, if perfidy it was. I had not known her for long, but would not have thought her capable of stooping so low as to poison a strange Norwegian soup. And not just my mug, but the cauldron full. I wondered about the others in the lecture tent audience, some of whom I counted as friends. Little Tim, the meteorology student, Sasha, the ruffian, Constance Crufud, the transcriber of Witterings by Yoko Ono. Were they and others now beyond help, their digestive systems shutting down as El Hugervamp's mysterious soup sprinkling ravaged their innards? I was seized with a desperate need to return to the tent, however perilous the journey may be, 
and stood up suddenly, gesticulating like a maniac at Serge, who, blind though he was, regarded me with amusement. It was at this point that a pair of ostriches came thudding and scampering into the pod. At least, I think they were ostriches. You can never be sure, particularly if, like me, you have not accorded bird life the same painstaking attention as you have hounds, and I grant that I have not done so. No, never, 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 and I regret that now. Serge greeted the ostriches, if that is what they were, with a curiously unnerving whoop. Unnerving because it sounded exactly, and I mean exactly, like El Hugervamp's laughter, a sound I knew well and would never hear again without shuddering. How convenient if I could say that I swooned and recalled nothing more. But I remember those next two minutes with a grim clarity. There is a line in one of Dennis Beerpint's poems that goes... Then the ostriches revealed themselves as emissaries from something-something, and all was magnesium white and something. That pretty much sums up how it was. I often wonder how Beerpint, that puny versifier, somehow managed to foretell what happened to me that night in an otherwise irrelevant piece of concrete drivel. One of the ostriches gave me the once-over and told Serge he had picked the wrong person. See, point five above. Their pod would have to be released from its restraining wires and be transported, I knew not how, to the perimeter of a holiday camp near Basingstoke, where the true, and, it was hinted, more worthy, recipient of Serge's otherworldly message was awaiting them. I had time to tie my shoelace before I was bundled out of the pod and abandoned. I hailed a passing motorised snowplough which took me back to the lecture tent. Everyone was still there, looking none the worse for wear, animatedly discussing valves and flaps and funnels and dials and ducts and plungers and hundreds upon hundreds of nozzles. The consensus was that Serge had been the most charismatic lecturer of the winter. Through a fog of pipe smoke, I sought out El Hugervamp and found her lounging in a nook, her eyes flashing brilliantly and laughing her head off, and I shuddered. As I said, Christmas is coming, um, so here's a, here's, a, here's a seasonal Christmas piece. Um, it doesn't mention David Bowie, which much to my horror both of the previous pieces have. Um, I should point out for um, listeners who are interested in these things that um, the piece I'm going to read next is taken from um, the forthcoming, imminently forthcoming, Hooting Yard Anthology, print anthology, a paperback book, entitled Befuddled by Cormorants, 52 Stories. And um, the book gathers together 52 stories, one for every week of next year, um, from two and a half years of um, Hooting Yard on the air radio shows. So isn't that something exciting to look forward to? Um, unable to get it out in time for Christmas, but it should be out very, very soon. 
Um, if you want to know how to get hold of a copy, um, you can go to the Hooting Yard website at its exciting new address, which is www.hootingyard.org. O-R-G. www.hootingyard.org. Um, and details of the book will probably also be available on the Resonance FM website. And um, this is called Christmas Dinner. Boiled Cormorant a la Dobson. This is a splendid and satisfying dish, easy to prepare, highly nutritious and the enemy of indigestion. First, ensure your kitchen is free of verminous, creeping things with hundreds of legs, suckers and antennae. Root them out and exterminate them. Gather the tiny corpses, place them in a paper bag, seal the bag with glue, carry it out of the house and set fire to it. Do not go back indoors until every last speck has been consumed by the terrible flames. Now, back in the kitchen, take off your wind cheater and your big black boots and wash your hands with carbolic soap. Cover your hairstyle, if you have one, with a clean rag fixed in place by an elastic band. You are ready to begin. Take a freshly slaughtered cormorant and place it on your work surface. Vegetarians can substitute the bird with a pretend cormorant modelled in marzipan. I will not remind you of this point again. Pluck all the feathers off and put them in a grinder. Grind them to fine powder, and using a funnel, pour the powder into a spare cruet. If there is a ring around the cormorant's neck, as there will be if it has been exploited by fisher folk, carefully remove the ring and throw it away, unless it is old and decorative, in which case you may wish to pop it in an envelope and send it to Antiques Roadshow veteran Hugh Scully. But do that later, on Boxing Day. Step 2. Boil the cormorant. While the bird is simmering away, prepare the sauce. Chop up into tiny bits four pomegranates, a plum, lots and lots of potatoes, 16 bananas, another cormorant, some toffee apples and a chock ice. Place the tiny bits in a bowl and stir thoroughly, then get the funnel again and pour the contents of the bowl into the grinder. Adjust the setting to moderately violent grinding and switch it on for no more than 10 seconds. Transfer back into the bowl. Add water up to the brim and stir. Do not on any account use tap water. You will ruin the recipe and end up with a bowl of inedible sludge unless you use the fantastically pure spring water drawn from the mysterious old well at Pointy Town. Drain any remaining water from the pan with the boiled cormorant in it and tip the contents of the bowl in, making sure you do so in one swift movement. Ideally, it should sound like this. Gloop, 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 gloop. Now, put the bowl down somewhere, bring the pan back to the boil and allow to simmer while you fry the cocktail sausages. They should be almost, but not quite, black. You're nearly done. Take a large oval platter and make a bed of shredded lettuce, chives, spring onions, 
porridge, oats, cream crackers and mayonnaise. Have another look round the kitchen to make sure no creepy crawlies have appeared from any unhatched eggs you may have overlooked earlier. Turn off the heat and transfer the boiled cormorant and sauce onto the platter. Use a clean dishcloth to wipe around the edges in case any of the sauce is dribbling over the side. Take a Swiss army knife out of your pocket, extract the sharpest blade and just in case the last time you used it was to dislodge a pebble from the sole of your boot, plunge it into boiling water to sterilise it. Very carefully slice the blade across the cormorant as deep as you can and put the knife down. Insert the cocktail sausages into the bird, then sew up the slit with edible butcher's string. Try to remember where you left the spare cruet and sprinkle the powdered cormorant feathers evenly over the dish. Add salt and pepper to taste. Serve. It has to be said that most of the inhabitants of O'Houlihan's Wharf are not worth writing about. They're, they are, with few exceptions, a grey and insipid bunch. One of those exceptions, however, is the pedant from whose pen streams a series of righteous nostrums, or possibly nostra, regularly sent out into the world, or at least into this bilge-water-befouled corner of it, posted as they are on a notice board outside the pet shop from which they are rapidly torn down and stuffed into the pockets of those citizens who collect them with something approaching mania. Three questions present themselves to the inquiring mind. Who is this pedant? What are his nostrums? And are they righteous? I do not have an inquiring mind, at least not today, for I am too busy putting the finishing touches to my taxonomy of swans in tin, wood, grease and sand, an imposing sculpture which has not yet found a buyer and may therefore remain wedged in my bathroom for years to come. But I know that listeners will be curious about the pedant and his nostrums and their righteousness, so I asked Dr Ruth Pastry to investigate. Now, Dr Pastry and I have a somewhat fraught relationship. Many moons ago, we got into an argument about that anonymous 18th century suicide note, which reads in its entirety, all this buttoning and unbuttoning. I cannot recall the substance of our dispute, only that harsh and unforgivable words were exchanged, saucepans hurled, one still brimful of an appetising soup, and threats levelled against pets, to wit, a tortoise and a goose. The tortoise was mine, the goose Dr Pastries. In the end, neither of them came to any harm, at least not immediately, although, of course, the ravages of the passing years took their toll, 
and both of them are now dead and gone. Diego the tortoise in a maelstrom and Rex the goose in a railway accident. Very much alive, though, is the feud between me and Dr Pastry, and it was with a view to ending it that I invited her help with the pedant and his righteous nostrums. It was the sort of assignment I thought she would enjoy, given her fondness for both pedants and nostrums. I was wrong. Here is what she wrote in reply to my invitation. For the love of heaven, Key! What makes you think for one moment that I would ever again set foot in that confounded sea-girt wasteland? The last time I went to O'Houlihan's Wharf, I was young, cheery and full of beans, a blue stocking with a glint of glory in my bright blue eyes. Two hours after cycling into town with a pannier full of Proust, I was sprawled on a heap of pebbles, stinking of the sea, a prematurely aged drudge with gnats in my hair, pustules on my brow and a belly full of 90% proof eggnog. Don't get me wrong, I don't blame the shriveled and witless O'Houlihan's warfights. It's simply the spirit of the place. It does that to a person, even to me. Well, never again. Your pedant with his nostrums can go hang. I am going out to the cemetery now to place a bunch of peonies and flax on poor Rex's tomb, and as I do so, I will curse you again and again, as I have cursed you every single day since the buttoning and unbuttoning business first flared. Adieu. Clearly, if I was going to satisfy my listeners' curiosity about the pedant and his nostrums and their righteousness, I would have to think again. Dr Pastry seemed in no mood to make peace, and I was not sure I would be able to change her mind. All of which, I suppose, goes to explain why I found myself hopelessly lost in the dark, dark woods as midnight struck. With Dr Pastry down the pan, as it were, I worked desultorily as midnight struck. At the... sorry... With Dr Pastry down the pan, as it were, I worked desultorily at the taxonomy of swans, my mind buzzing away, trying to think of someone else who might be able to help. As I tamped a fistful of grease into a knothole, I suddenly remembered the old blind woodcutter. It was true that he knew nothing of O'Houlihan's wharf, but, I reasoned, that might work to my advantage. Dipping my hands into a tub of Swarfiga, I tried to recall his metal tapping machine registry number. He had made me swear never to write it down, and I had honoured my promise, partly out of rectitude and partly because he said that if I broke my word, he would send a sloth of slow lumbering bears to smother me in my bed. His sightless eyes gleamed dangerously in the candlelight as he said this, and I realised that the story about how old Ma Bagshaw met her end suddenly made sense. My word is my bond, I mumbled, and the old blind woodcutter cackled. Now, though, twenty years later, with the Soviet Union long collapsed, I simply could not remember that damned number. I realised I would have to set off into the dark, dark woods and find the old blind woodcutter's crumbling cottage and ask him face to face. 
I tacked the end of a length of string to my gate and paid it out behind me as I walked, each step taking me further and further from the comforts of home and the unfinished taxonomy of swans and closer to the perils of the dark, dark woods. Had I known that my neighbour's eagle, Simon, had swooped out of the sky within minutes of my departure and bitten the end off the string because it smelled of hamster, I would have stopped then and there. In my ignorance, of course, I tramped on, little knowing that, like the answers, my friend, my string, the string that should see me safely home, was blowing in the wind. And the answers to my three questions about the pedant of O'Hulahan's wharf and his nostrums and the righteousness of his nostrums, they too are blowing in the wind. For what hope do I have of discovering them now in this Stygian darkness? It is midnight. I am encircled by enormous trees. The duff underfoot is musty and damp and alive with tiny biting creatures. There is no trace of the old blind woodcutter's cottage. Perhaps I only ever imagined him. My hands still stink of swarfiga. It is midnight and pitch black, and I have been wandering these dark, dark woods for a hundred years. Luckily, you don't have a hundred years to wait for the next episode of Hooting Yard on the Air, um, which... I think should be back um, next Wednesday, two days after Christmas, 27th of December, same time, same place as ever. Um, and I may have further news for you then of Befuddled by Cormorants. But until then, I hope you've enjoyed the show and have a good week. Um, bye bye. <laughs>